This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. At the outbreak of the First World War, civilian Ireland was sucked into the war along with Irish members of the British Army. Women were left alone to support families. Food shortages and rising prices began to affect people's lives. This, coupled with the intense political debates about conscription, Ireland's role in the war, and indeed in the United Kingdom, were what created the appropriate conditions for the Easter Rising. One example of civilian involvement in the war effort arose when large numbers of wounded soldiers began arriving back to Ireland from battles in France and Belgium in 1915. Members of the Irish Automobile Club converted their cars into ambulances at their own expense and transported the wounded to hospitals. The volunteers of St John's Ambulance carried out similar duties. When the Easter Rising broke out, these civilian ambulance drivers suddenly had to deal with the casualties of a battle that raged in the streets around them rather than in a far-off field in Flanders. Whether or not Albert Mitchell was one of these drivers is unclear from his statement, as it deals only with the events of the Easter Rising. What we do know, however, is that he drove an ambulance around the blood-stained streets of Dublin, ferrying the wounded and dead to hospitals and morgues throughout the week and its aftermath. He described returning to Dublin from a trip to Carlow to see the chaos unfolding around him. Not knowing what the row was about, and as there was no trams or conveyance of any sort, I started to walk up to my factory in Waterford Street. I was stopped at Kingsbridge and questioned and searched by an English officer with a revolver in his hand pointing at my chest. I went to Ben Burb Street and very soon came to a barricade across the street behind which were 20 or 30 English soldiers. I was halted and questioned again, and then allowed to proceed. About half a mile further on I came to another barricade, and was again halted and questioned, this time by young men wearing bandoliers over civilian clothing. These were a company of the Irish volunteers. The officer in charge of this barricade politely explained the situation to me, that there was a rising of Irish volunteers, and that I should not be out. He offered to send an escort with me, but after a moment's consideration I thanked him and declined the offer, as I felt I might be safer alone. Mitchell could not make it home, however, encountering British cordons on every route to his house. After resorting to sleeping on the roadside for the night, he contacted an acquaintance in the Irish Automobile Club. Due to the fact that he could drive, a relatively rare skill in those days, he was enlisted by his friend to drive an ambulance for the Red Cross, who were operating out of the RDS showgrounds near his house. This would have entitled him to pass through any British barricade during the week, presumably enabling him to sleep in his own bed. Mitchell risked his life for the rest of the week, presumably saving several in the process, as he drove wounded civilians, soldiers and rebels from battle sites to hospitals. Without any definite instructions as to my duties, I was to report to this officer at 9am next morning, which I did. Shortly after 9am, a British staff officer came out and ordered me to start the engine as he wished to be taken to Portobello Barracks. I told him I had no instructions to carry any but wounded or hospital cases and he replied that he was giving me my instructions. To argue seemed useless after my previous experience the night before. I thought better to comply. I drove through the city without interference until I came to Anger Street where in the distance I saw a crowd of people on the street near Jacob's factory and among them some men in green uniforms with rifles. Obviously Irish rebels. I stopped the ambulance and ordered the officer to get in and lie down on one of the stretchers. I then drove on, and when I came near to the crowd, they opened out, and the men in green uniforms made passage for the ambulance. 
But when I got to the barracks, I thought what would have happened if someone had jumped onto the back of the car and seen this officer. The officer was much in the same condition of nerves and fright as I was. I refused to wait and take him back, and I told him to get back any way he liked. But when I reported back to the RDS, an orderly informed me that the officer inside wished to speak to me. He was relieved of his duties and had his permits revoked. The officer had made a complaint about him to HQ, leaving Mitchell back at square one. He returned to his friend at the Irish Automobile Club, who was able to obtain him a new posting. I was introduced to another British officer, and at this time was given a lorry to drive, and the usual permits and passes to get me through the military lines. My instructions were to visit all hospitals, morgues, collect the dead, search them and try and identify them, and then take them to Dean's Grange Cemetery for burial. For this, I was given the assistance of a sergeant and four orderlies. While driving through Moore Street to Jervis Street Hospital, one afternoon towards the end of the week, the sergeant drew my attention to the body of a man lying in the gutter on Moore Lane. He was dressed in a green uniform. I took the sergeant and two men with a stretcher and approached the body, which appeared to be still alive. We were about to lift it up when a young English officer stepped out of a doorway and refused to allow us to touch it. I told him of my instructions from HQ, but all to no avail. When back in the lorry, I asked the sergeant what was the idea. His answer was, he must be someone of importance, and the bastards are leaving him there to die of his wounds. It is the easiest way to get rid of him. We came back again at nine o'clock that night. The body was still there, and an officer guarding it. I asked why I wasn't allowed to take the body, and who was it? He replied that his life and his job depended on it being left there. He would not say who it was. I never saw the body again, but I was told by different people that it was the Arali. Mitchell would not have known this at the time, but he was looking at a fellow motoring enthusiast. Michael Joseph O'Rahilly, or as he was known simply, the O'Rahilly, was a founding member of the Irish Volunteers and served as their Director of Arms, personally leading the Hoth gun running operation. As a reasonably wealthy man, he was the owner of a De Dion Bouton car. He was close to Owen McNeil and spent the day and night before the rising driving around the country delivering McNeil's countermanding order to various volunteer companies. However, when he arrived back in Dublin to discover that the rising had gone ahead regardless, he said, well, I've helped to wind up the clock, I might as well hear it strike. He joined the garrison in the GPO. Having fought there all week, and with the GPO in flames by Friday, the O'Rahilly volunteered to lead a party of men out of the building to safety. However, on Moore Street, he encountered a British machine gun nest and was shot several times. Slumped in a doorway, bleeding to death, he managed to scrawl a note to his wife to say goodbye. This was the scene that Albert Mitchell encountered. Mitchell continued his work long after the rebels surrendered, collecting the dead from the streets. I reckon we buried 200 bodies of civilians and Irish soldiers, also some English soldiers in Dean's Grange. A few words in passing about my companion, the sergeant. A typical Cockney, intelligent and witty. He thought he was again to be sent to France and wondered how everyone he met spoke such good English. Never heard of any rebellion in Ireland, for which country he had a strange sort of sympathy. It appears he was married to an Irish girl when he was young. The best bloody woman the Lord ever put Brett into. I left my job of burying the dead on the 6th of May. Mitchell's companion, the sergeant, highlights the confusion of the time and also underlines a disconnect between the feelings of the troops on the ground and that of the military command. Mitchell's actions were just one example of the massive humanitarian effort that ensued after the fighting broke out. 
His bravery under fire and efforts to help civilians, rebels and soldiers must not be forgotten when we examine the impact on civilians' lives the Rising had. For other, less well-known stories from this interesting period in Irish history, go to www.storiesfrom1916.com. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.